Hey, welcome back to the Pastor Talk podcast as we start a new series of podcasts today. We're calling it Real People of the Faith. And the idea is over the next several weeks, we will be highlighting a biblical character. We'll talk about their background. We'll talk about their story. We'll cover some of the things they got right, some of the things they got wrong, and their place in the overall biblical narrative, as well as what we think we learn from them. And today, we start with Moses. Yeah, we start with Moses, and really our entire list of people, Clint, has been chosen not because they're more significant or less significant. Really, we we looked at the cast of biblical characters for a, a number of things, like how much background do we have on them, uh, how much uh, we don't want to make just pure speculation, but yet we want to have enough content uh, of their life that we can make some reasonable deductions. And I think Moses is a strong choice for this conversation, the first conversation here, because Moses both historically and biblically occupies a very important place in our family of faith. Moses um, is really an image of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament as what uh, New Testament theologians have uh, pointed to Moses as sort of this image of the one who goes through the river is the very same kind of images we even have the Apostle Paul making in the New Testament. We have a, a lot recorded about Moses' past and his family and the story of his leadership with the people of Israel. So uh, Moses is our starting point in this long pantheon of Christian men and women, and I'm excited about it. Yeah, and I think it probably needs said that a lot of this conversation, of course, will be from the biblical material, but there will be many moments where Michael and I reflect on things that it doesn't tell us in the scripture, but points to what a what a character may have been feeling, what the experience of their life may have been. You know, the Bible doesn't really dwell on the emotional or what we might call the psychological aspects of the characters very much because it is so focused on the faith story of these men and women. But they are for us jumping off points and it I think is helpful to nuance the story by asking some of the questions about the kind of internal things that may be going on. So we'll try to identify when we do that or when we're doing that in the middle of that so that it doesn't get confused with biblical material. Um, I, I think the fear for some, Michael, would be that that weakens the character or minimizes the faith story but I would argue it it actually makes it more interesting. I think we forget sometimes that these characters are humans, that we read the stories of real men and women in real moments where they had to choose fear or faith, they had to choose personal safety or their task, their role as a leader, as as a person of faith. They had to stand up before authorities and face those who had power over them in the name of God. And yes, that's an act of faith. But to me, it only deepens those events and those moments, realizing that that they're not superheroes. These These are real people who end up being an extraordinary part of our story because of what they're able to do. And I would just like to say as we start these conversations 
that our hope is that you don't need to have a whole lot of biblical understanding to engage in this conversation. For that very reason, these people are real people. And as we try to come into their lives and to portray uh, both the good and the bad, the, the best and the worst, that you're going to be able to find things in this that you can relate to, whether or not you have a long history of reading the Bible. So if this goes really well, you shouldn't need to have any past biblical understanding or certainly be a biblical scholar to really be able to engage with this material. Yeah, so with that said, let's jump in here. Um, I think many people are kind of familiar with the general backstory of Moses. Moses is born at a time that is dangerous. It's a time of oppression. The Hebrew people, they're not called Israelites yet. The Hebrew people live under slavery. They are controlled by the Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They have been growing as a a number, a population, as a people, and the Pharaoh and his officials are concerned, and so they, they do these horrible things, and the result of that is an edict that goes out to all the people of Egypt that if they encounter a, a male infant of the Hebrews, they're to throw it in the river, they're there to to kill it, to eradicate the males, to kind of control the population. And it's into that moment that Moses is born. His mother is a, a woman of some initiative, and when she can no longer hide him, she puts him in a basket in the riverbed, and the Pharaoh's daughter, she knows, walks there often, and so she kind of engineers this plan to try and save her child's life. In fact, the name Moses, you may know, means from the river or from the marsh. And it works. And so after a brief time of Moses being back with his parents until he is weaned, he then moves into the Pharaoh's palace. And he grows up in the heart of Egyptian power, strength, and privilege which is a fascinating thing to think about for a Hebrew. It is. And you could not overemphasize the extreme polarities, how different those experiences of the world are, right? The Hebrew family whose babies are being eradicated, who are being subjected, who are, as best as we can tell, uh, being forced into forced labor, who are restricted in their freedom of travel and their rights. And then you have on the other side this opulent lifestyle in which you have everything that you could possibly want and more. And here's this guy who is occupying both, one by genetic and the other by adoption. And so you have what is really, quite frankly, in the biblical text, just a a very short introduction. I mean, literally, you really have a a chapter and a half here of setup to Moses's character, and yet this is the context in which he's born and he grows up. And that is, I think, very much the backdrop upon which we see Moses living out his story as it unfolds. Yeah, I... I think we encounter in Moses, if we can allow ourselves to speculate, right? It would be really nice if the Bible filled in some of those gaps. What is it like for a Hebrew who knows he's a Hebrew 
to grow up in a place of privilege and power? To what extent is he included? To what extent is he ostracized? To what extent is he one or the other? But I, I think what that does is set the stage to imagine Moses as a person who from the very outset lives a life kind of between two worlds. He, he's not really either. He, he's not Hebrew. He's not out there making bricks. He, he's not doing forced labor. He's not a slave. He's not in danger. On the other hand, he's not an Egyptian. And whatever security and privilege the adoption may have gotten for him, he's not a son of the Pharaoh. He's not a grandson. He's, he's in the mix, but not in a way where he's one of them. The biblical text is actually very clear about that. It says here, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. That It gives that impression right from the beginning. He knows this distinction. He, he goes to be where his people are. And this is the very beginning of that first act, this climactic beginning of Moses' story where he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew and the text says one of his own people, one of Moses' own people were being beaten. And so in response to this, he kills the Egyptian and hides him in the sand. And this sets off Moses' story. Whatever background there was there, that action is the commencement of a completely new beginning of Moses' story. Which interestingly, may have come about because of his position had he grown up under the oppression of the Egyptians. One can speculate that he would not have had the courage to attack one of the Egyptians. But having grown up over the soldiers in in the place, the palace that is above them, perhaps it's that very aspect of Moses' experience that turns his anger into action. And, you know, it's one of those moments, Michael, where the the Bible doesn't really give a moral opinion about what Moses does. He it, it just tells us the story. He attacks the Egyptian. He kills him. He hides the body. The next day or or some short period later, he finds out that people know about it. And again, we see that he knows he's not safe. He, he says, he, he knows instinctively that if the Pharaoh finds out, he'll take my life. So the fact that he's the adopted son of the Pharaoh's daughter, Moses doesn't understand as a protection for what he's done. And so he flees, runs off. And I think probably in Moses' mind, that's where it was going to end. You know, he's off to a third path. He's going to go out. He's going to be a shepherd. He's going to put both the Hebrews and the Egyptians behind him and just try to live a life under the radar. Yeah, very much it gives this impression that he's looking for a life that's his own, not the one that he was born into, not the one that he inherited that he's going to go, he's going to be a simple shepherd, he's going to make a family and a life, and he's going to drift off of the pages of history. And that's not at all what God has in mind. Yeah, and it turns in the story that you know, the burning bush, 
I suspect that many, many times in his life, Moses must have thought, if it wasn't for that stupid bush, I would have done just that. Yeah. But the day comes, he sees the bush, he goes to the bush. What he doesn't expect and what he doesn't know until he gets there is it's not the bush at all. He has an encounter with God. He has a moment where he stands before the Holy One. He falls before the Holy One who calls him to what will be now from this moment his life's purpose to go set my people free. Although I think it has to be said, Michael, that initially Moses (laughs) isn't a big fan of the idea. At all. Yeah, and that's an important mark on Moses' character. There are some people who when they go to the burning bush and they find out they're talking to God, they launch into 15 questions and, you know, this is my God experience. All right, here I am. And, of course, that's not Moses' response at all. In fact, if you're being generous, you would say that Moses is hesitant. Maybe you could even go so far as to say that Moses is resistant. You could say that he is actively pushing against God and saying, I'm actually happy with the version of the story that I've found myself in, God, I would prefer you not mess that up. Yeah, I think if you read that text, you find Moses gives excuse after excuse. You know, I I can't go back there. I don't speak very well. They're not going to believe me. Moses has this ongoing list of reasons that he can't and shouldn't be the one to go talk to the Pharaoh. And God just undercuts each and every one of them till finally God kind of says, you know, Moses, this is the end of the conversation you're going. And and we get that we get that word Yahweh uh in the scripture. And lots of people don't know this is where it comes from. The the moment where Moses asks, Well, when I go tell them God sent me and they ask who that is, what am I going to say to them? And God gives the answer, often translated in English, I am who I am. I, I, I will be, tell them I am sent you. What's fascinating about that word from a language standpoint is that in the Hebrew there, there's no tense. It's the word to be, but there's no past, present, or future. There's no, it's not I am, it's not I was, it's not I will be, it's simultaneously all of those So you could translate those, I will be who I am. I am who I was. I will be who I was. I was who I... In other words, on one hand, I I just am, Moses. On the other hand, I don't have to tell you that. I I don't have to give you... You don't get to define me. I'm sending you to do a thing because I'm God, and that's all you need to know at this point. I, I don't need to give you the full in explanation of anything. And um, I, I think that's a pivotal moment in the story. Uh, Moses realizes he's out of excuses. Moses realizes he's got no chance of debating th- this this being who is supreme. And he reluctantly sets his face back towards Egypt. And a key linchpin at the end of this conversation is the moment in which Moses, running out of excuses, tells God, I'm not eloquent, I'm not a good public speaker, I'm not the guy to go tell the people of Israel the stuff that you're telling me, because I can't stumble into it. And this is now entering to the realm of 
speculation. That this is sure. not a thing that the biblical text is, has said. This is a thing that people have rumored about it. But there has been conversation. What does Moses mean about, I'm not eloquent, I'm not going to be a good speaker? There's some talk about that being physical. Yeah, there's conjecture that he may have had some sort of speech difficulty, that, that it's possible that he... That, some of the ideas have been that he stuttered or that he had other kinds of, of problems speaking. It could have been that he was just extremely, you know, some people just the idea of any kind of public speaking is terrifying to them. Um, Jerry Seinfeld used to do a joke about more people are afraid of public speaking than death, which means at a funeral you'd rather be the one in the casket than you would the one at the microphone. Um, maybe that's Moses, but uh, again, I I, th- I think that's a moment when we can focus on Moses and we can see some of the irony, or we can see the bigger picture, which is to focus on God and say, of course God picks a runaway Hebrew who killed an Egyptian and is under a death sentence from the Pharaoh and, by the way, may not be able to get through three sentences to go back and confront the same Pharaoh and tell them, let my people go. Only God could come up with that. Yeah, and let's add to that, Clint, and also going back to people who may not want him. They may want to repel him just as much as he left. So, exactly. The kind of story that we see with Moses is not one where you have the capable, willing, trained leader honed and groomed and then brought up and sent out into the world. Not at all. You have somebody who's got this tumultuous childhood, who's just trying to sort of make it in life, who gets told, you've got to go do this thing, who says, I don't really want to go do that thing. And God says, I didn't ask you what you wanted to do. This is what I'm calling you to do. Yeah. And at the risk of digging in too deep, we need to continue to move ahead in the story. I think lots of it, you know, Moses does seem to increasingly live into that role. His first encounter with the Pharaoh is okay, but I, I think you can read the text. And again, this, this is my take on it. Be careful with that. But I think you can read the text that you see Moses confidence. You see Moses allegiance. You see Moses bravado increase with each and every encounter with the Pharaoh as he delivers the plagues. I, I feel like he sort of slinks in the first time. And by the end, he's walking in confidently, chest out, head back, saying, I'm warning you, Pharaoh. I think he begins to live into that role, ultimately bringing the plagues and ushering in that moment in which the Egyptians, um, devastated by the plagues, particularly by the death of the firstborn son, the last plague, the Passover, come to that moment when they say we've had enough they relent the pharaoh relents and the people are free to go you could read the text different ways i think one way to read moses's story is to say that the second major act of his life 
after you have uh, the calling of God is when he stands there by the sea and the waters part and the people of Israel go through it. That image from Moses' story has been told throughout Christian history. Uh, Some particular groups, like the African church, that became a prominent theme in their hope, the idea that God will lead you through the river. Where Where there is apparently, visibly no way, God will literally make a way. God will make a road through water. And it is that very same image that gets uh, taken up with the idea of Jesus leading us through death, even some of our ideas of baptism going through the water. This image of Moses standing there with the staff with nothing but a hope and promise in God and God showing up in a big way and making a path for the people of Israel to go through. It really initiates the next phase of his life of leadership and ministry. Yeah, and I and I tend to see it in that way, Michael, that there's these two chapters of Moses' leadership. And really the first is when he leads as, as a speaker, a challenger. He confronts the Pharaoh. He speaks on behalf of the people. I think Moses' leadership takes a very distinct turn on the backside of that where he now literally functions as the leader of the Hebrews after their escape. And it's an... It's a more interesting period, I think, because you would think Moses leads the people out. They've seen the miracles. They march to the promised land under his leadership. They they hoist him on their shoulders, and it's all good. But we know people don't work that way, right? None of us, even easy things aren't easy oftentimes. And so they complain. They grumble. In the story, we waste almost no time getting to the point, literally just a matter of verses where they say, oh, Moses, you brought us out here to die. What, what's wrong with you? What, why did you do this to us? And this guy who had to think, I did it, is now thinking, why are they, what is going on here? Why are they upset? In fact, he says several times, don't quarrel with me. I didn't, this, none of this was my idea. And, and I wonder if it was difficult for Moses, having been called to something monumentally dangerous that he didn't want to do, and yet trusting God in it, to then be hindered and hampered with these moments of murmuring and grumbling and complaining that that dominate the rest of the story. I'm sure there were good days, but the Bible isn't too interesting. The Bible focuses on how much of the story was hard and how often the people made it harder. Very personally, that's one of the reasons I trust the Bible with my life is because of its willingness to tell absolutely unflattering hard truths. And that's not just of Moses, that's also the people of Israel. I mean, they are also the people who literally went through water, right? I mean, it took an act of faith for every one of them to step out, to literally make that next step. And yet when they get to the other side, almost instantaneously, like you said, Clint, they're complaining about food, they're complaining about water, they're complaining about the lodging situation, they're complaining about how they resolve difficulties, they uh, in not too long they're going to get tired of Moses going up the mountain and they're going to start building idols so the people of Israel aren't portrayed in a particularly positive light and Moses as their leader the guy who didn't even sign up for this in the first place is now bearing the weight of that and 
I think that's a, a very important thing to lift out in the conversation of Moses is he's a guy trying to do the best with what he has, and that's not a whole lot. Yeah, and there's a stunning leadership moment. I, I would even say transitional moment, I think, Michael, where in the early part of the story, God tells Moses, I want you to go free my people. But there's some question as to whether hmm. they're Moses' people. Yeah. And, and he even sort of refers to them, to the Pharaoh, as let God's people go. But then there's this moment, he's up on the mountain, the people are down below, they make the golden calf, God is aware of it, and God tells Moses, look, I'm done. I, these people, I, I no sooner get them out of Egypt than they melt down the gold, which, by the way, they left with because of me and my action, and now they build a calf, and they're worshiping it with it. I'm going to take you and start over, Moses. And And Moses says no. Moses stands before God and says, it, you, you brought us here. And Moses intercedes. He puts himself literally between God's anger and the people's deserved punishment. And he says, if, I, if you get rid of them, get rid of me also. In, in other words, I think we see Moses in that moment for the first real-time claim, look, these are my people. And I stand in the gap between their shortcomings and their sinfulness and their relationship with the Holy One. And um, this man who has been obedient multiple times, now with what I can only imagine is unthinkable courage, says, God, no, I, I, that's not what we should do here. And I don't want to be careful with that. It's not that Moses is giving God advice. It's that he's, he's digging in his feet. When we turn to biblical characters, I think our mistake is often to gloss over them with the children's Bible version. And the children's Bible is great to tell us their story. But these men and women were very complicated, real people, right? And Moses here... For all of his misgivings, for all of his maybe even physical disability, for all of the stuff that he brings to this conversation that's broken, there are moments in Moses' life where he does the unbelievably courageous and right thing. And he stands in between. He, he literally stands between the people and their God, a position that he would have months or years ago would have never even wanted to occupy. And I think what's critical here, Clint, is to who gets the glory? Not Moses. Right. Moses doesn't get the glory for that action. Moses doesn't even get the glory for stepping up and occupying that space as leader because throughout the entire story, Moses' entire life, I think one could say, God is the principal character. God is the one who calls, God's the one who sends, God's the one who equips, and, and as Moses comes to this moment, God is the one who is willing to, to listen to, to this person, and that is God's own graciousness at work. 
Yeah, and then Moses does the hard task of leadership. He exacts a measure of punishment upon the people. And he he doesn't simply look the other way in their idolatry, but he, there is a, a reckoning and accountability. I, I think um, several thousand, according to the text, are put to death because of this thing that they've done. And yet Moses has stood before God and said, don't abandon them. Um, it, 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 hold them accountable but do not give up on them. I have not given up on them. And I think that's a significant moment in the text. Um, it continues, you know the story. They they wander somewhat. They grumble. There's some food, some water. God does those things. They get to the promised land. They have an opportunity to go in, but they're afraid. They refuse. Um, Moses is frustrated. God is frustrated. Then the people say, we're sorry. They try to go in after that, and they're they're devastated. They're routed by the enemy because God doesn't go with them. Moses actually tried to talk them out of that. And, and then they have this period of wandering, the 40 years, this extended time of being out in the wilderness. And they have a tabernacle, and Moses functions both here as leader somewhat at priest he's the intermediary he's going up the mountain he's talking to god he's bringing down um edicts and commandments not the ten commandments that happened earlier well the second version of them happens in that time and he is interpreting for the people what it means to live with god as their god and to be god's people and that certainly changes his role it does. And as a leader, you start to see Moses also, in addition to those things, as administrator. If you read these chapters in Exodus, it, it just starts to be piling on these details about garments and tabernacles and what you do in this circumstance and what this Sabbath rule is. You start to get the sense that Moses recognizes that there needs to be more than just charismatic leadership. Not that he ever occupied that position as the most charismatic, but one person couldn't carry the weight, that there needed to be delegation, there needed to be some rules, there needed to be some structure and administration, and that it, this, uh, this whole community was going to go beyond him. And in fact, that becomes explicit in the story. Yeah, if I remember correctly, there's this moment where he meets with his father-in-law, and his father-in-law tells him, Moses, you've got to get some help. And he, he helps him figure out a plan to get some other, another layer of leadership between him and the people. And they will kind of be people to whom Moses can delegate some of the, the daily tasks. And th- that's really, in, in some ways, that's where we see the Moses story uh, begin to fade, I think, Michael. Hmm. Uh, we have the people. They're out in the desert. There has been a moment where, in frustration, we all know this, the first story where Moses hits the rock and water comes out. There's been a moment where the people were frustrated again. They're complaining again that they don't have water. And Moses gets angry, and it says that he struck the rock twice, and water came out. And 
I think it's lost to us. You know, there, this is one of those things that doesn't make sense, and maybe it used to, or maybe we just don't get it. But God is angry mm-hmm. with him, either for getting angry or for hitting the rock without instruction or for hitting the rock twice. There have been lots of guesses. But, but the result is God tells Moses, after all of this, mm-hmm. he doesn't get to go into the promised land. He says, I'm, I'm going to let you see it, Moses. I'm going to take you there to the edge, but you're not going to be the leader who leads the people in. That's going to fall on someone else's shoulders, and there'll be new leadership that ushers them in. And lots of ways to read that, lots of questions that raises. But many people, I think, don't, if they've not studied the Moses story, they may not be aware that Moses dies just on the outside edge of the promised land. Again, a transitional person leading the people from one place to another, but Moses is the leader in the gap. He's not the leader in Egypt. He's not the leader in the promised land. He is that trail boss that has to manage all of the stuff on the journey. And his leadership is lived out almost exclusively on the journey with the one gracious exception that he gets to stand on the cliff. He gets to look into the promised land, knowing they've made it, knowing the people will enter, but also with the awareness he's not going to be the one that takes them there in into the land. We, as part of these conversations, want to be fair to these characters, but to recognize that as humans, they bring lots of good and bad, great choices, poor choices, good habits, bad habits, all that comes into these conversations. So I think that's the question that I wonder here. Seeing this large expanse of time, and we could dig into any one of these sections, yeah. and but what are the, uh, what did Moses get right, and where did Moses miss the mark? I think as we look at the story, we see the developing character of Moses as one who obeys. Uh, he answers to God. God calls him up the mountain, he goes. God calls him to say this or do this. He does it. I'm not sure he starts there, but I think by the end of the story, largely, we we see that. Um, and and I love this. You know, the image of being the mediator is is fascinating. There's this story in which every time Moses meets with God, then he'll come down off the mountain and his face glows, and the people are afraid of him glowing, and so they ask him to actually cover it up so he would veil his face in order to deal with the people and then he would unveil his face when when he would encounter God and again that that image of being in the middle what does it what does it mean to mediate between God and others what does it mean to to carry something of our relationship with God to other people and i i think that's a fascinating place to dig into Moses' life, Michael. Uh, I think there's a lot in that. Um, you know, on the whole, I, I, I don't know if you'd agree with this, on the whole, I think I would argue that unlike many biblical characters that we'll look at that have a major failing, mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure that we see that in Moses. I think 
the Bible is pretty consistent in reporting mm-hmm. to us Moses as a guy who did what he was supposed to do with this one very strange exception that I'm not sure we understand. Yeah, I'm, I'm really stepping out here and I'm doing a lot of reading into the text and not reading from the text here, Clint. So you may disagree with me very much here, but I wonder if when you talk about what Moses got wrong, if he ever really did move beyond his absolute reluctance at the burning bush. You know, the biblical account of Moses, I I agree with you, this idea of obeying, that Moses stepping up to the responsibility he was given. I even think you see him owning leadership throughout the course of his story. But I I hear, maybe once again, I, I'm putting this on the story, but there's so many moments when the text seems to focus on Moses being frustrated with the people and upset with their unwillingness to do their part. You never get the sense that he, as a person, moved completely beyond the reluctance that he started with. Yes, he had faith enough in God to take the step. Yes, he was willing to submit to the responsibility he was given. But you almost wonder if he never really did get to a point where his heart was in it. He he doesn't seem to have had that dynamic kind of leadership that we'll say in a that we'll see in say a person like David who who people just naturally follow and and they lift up and they celebrate I I don't think we see that clearly in Moses but on the flip side Michael I think there are times where reluctant leaders yeah. are powerful leaders mm-hmm. because what they never do is make it about them Right, we we see where David goes with that adulation. He he takes it as permission. He he goes yep. too far with it, and we'll talk about that later. It there's almost no danger of that from Moses, yep. because you always have at least that question hanging up. Does Moses want to be here? <laughs> Is this what Moses wants to be doing? And and that's an interesting question, but it it perhaps introduces the reason that Moses never leads from a place of ego. Mm-hmm. He, he never seems to make it about himself. And the, the, the deep freedom in that is in the moments it needs to be about God, it can be because Moses keeps himself out of the way, either on purpose or by default. But it does have some upside. And that's where I think I would want to move to that conversation about what we can learn from Moses, is that fundamentally, we have a guy here who I think, if we're being charitable, got a lot of stuff right and and didn't get a whole ton wrong. But like you said, the, the text is pretty consistent in its treatment of Moses. And I think the fact that you've got a guy who you wonder, does he still want to be here, continues to point to the main character in Moses' story. And the main character in Moses' story is always God. It's God's action at every single one of those points. God saves Moses from the river. God meets Moses in the bush. God 
performs these acts of power before the Pharaoh. God carries the people of Israel through the the water. God feeds and gives water to and clothes these people in the wilderness. God is actively working. And Moses then does occupy that position in the middle. It's never about Moses. It's always about the people and God. And Moses is sort of in that busy intersection. And I wonder if that's not a very, very helpful lesson. That when we get it right, to God be the glory because God is acting in that intersection. When we get it wrong, God is still able to act even beyond our weaknesses and brokenness. And I think maybe Moses, better than many of the other characters we're going to cover in our conversations, really exemplifies how God shows up in our stories. Yeah, and I think for me there's sort of two lingering lessons in Moses. The first is that Moses takes his stand wherever he needs to. And again, maybe he gets there reluctantly. But you think about Moses as a man. He stands before the most powerful person on the face of the earth at the time, the Pharaoh, and he does what God tells him. Mm -hmm. He stands in front of the people Mm -hmm. who are unhappy with him. In fact, at one point it says they want to stone him. And he speaks God to them. He speaks God's word just as he did to the Pharaoh. And then he also stands before God and speaks to God. He, he, so the common theme I see through Moses' story is this idea of his, him standing before, hmm. standing in front of. And sometimes in judgment, sometimes in condemnation, sometimes in opposition, sometimes in encouragement, sometimes in humility. But but it's an interesting thread, I think, that Moses is the one ultimately who stands. Stands before, stands with, stands against. And then secondly, there's this interesting story. God tells Moses he wants to essentially reward him for his faithfulness. And he says, I'll, I'll I'll give you what you ask. And Moses says, I want to see your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory. If if you see me face to face, you'll die. But I'll do this. I'll put you in the rocks over there and I'll pass by. And after I pass by, then you can look and you, you can see where I've where I've going where I've been going. And essentially the the Hebrew kind of indicates that Moses gets to take a look at God's backside. And the beauty of that, I think, from a leadership perspective is that as people of faith, we never get to see the whole picture, right? We, we never get to see where God is going. We never have God explained to us. We never get the full name of God at the burning bush. We never get to say, I need all the answers so I can go tell them. We, we only get that glimpse. And if we're lucky, it's a clear glimpse of where God has been so that we can follow. Because in order to lead, we have to follow. And, and I think, for me, that's just a it's a very rich, it's a, it's a powerful image, powerful story. And I, I think we celebrate, the, the Scripture celebrates Moses 
um, the greatest prophet that ever lives is what he's called it in his eulogy and never before and who walked with God as a friend and there, there are all these adulations of Moses and I think rightly so. The word that comes to mind in this conversation about Moses for me is faith because Moses at every step is taking leaps and trusting God. He he relies on God throughout the course of his ministry and for us as Christians I think it is absolutely critical that we not hold ourselves to a standard of faith that has never been seen before. In other words, there is no Green Beret Christian. There's not someone who gets it all right all the time. The story of Moses is a man who's reluctant and yet courageous and strong and brave and 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 God shows up in all of the right moments. Moses just has to have the faith enough to trust it. So wherever you stand, if you live with doubt, if you're reluctant, if you don't feel much like a person of faith, you are in great company. But the God who shows up in these moments is is the God who we need to invest our trust in. That's what we mean by faith. We need to be willing to trust that God's going to be there when we need God. And, and Moses is a living example of a person whose life was marked by that constant reinvesting in trust. And I think that is why Scripture gives such a beautiful picture of this man's life. Not because he got all right, but because of that constant investment in trust. Yeah, it's not Moses' charisma. It's not his courage. It's not his bravado. It's not his military mind it's not his strategic thinking Moses I think is celebrated because when God told him what needed done Moses did his best even in the moments he may not have wanted to to do it and that is the foundation of the life of faith that's all any of us can do to seek what God wants us to do and then apply ourselves, present ourselves to try and do it, whether we're excited about it or not in some cases. So I I think Moses gives us a good place to start in this conversation. Um, We hope there's something in that that is interesting to you. If you have questions, uh, send them to us. Let us know. We're glad that you joined us. We hope uh, these conversations will be helpful as we continue. Look forward to them. Thanks for being with us. Next podcast will continue the release on our normal schedule, so we look forward to seeing you next Wednesday. And just one note, you might not know this, this is the 25th episode of the Pastor Talk podcast released. And uh, so thank you for all of you who have stuck with us in this time. And one nerd request, I apologize, for all of you who are listening on iTunes Um, It would be unbelievably helpful for people trying to find the podcast if you would give us five stars. Maybe the people don't deserve five stars and maybe the content does it. But for all of the people who are trying to find us, the way that iTunes work, it would really help us if you wouldn't mind giving five stars to the podcast. It uh, raises it up on people's search bars so that they can um, find the podcast easier when they look for it. So uh, thank you for joining with us. Uh, 25 episodes in. We look forward to being with you again next week on the 26th episode.
See you, everybody.